Welcome one and all to another day here at the Damage Report with me, John Arola, and that's it. So buckle up, I've got the reins. They're securely held in only my hands. No one fighting me for control or contributing their unique perspectives. It's really, there's pros and cons, I'm discovering that. But anyway, we've got a lot to talk about in this hour. And I will let you know in advance that while through the course of this first hour, we're gonna be trying to catch up on all of the generally nonsense happening when it comes to Donald Trump and his legal situation. And I'm gonna be talking about the Supreme Court a little bit. We got that, we got Joe Biden apparently getting a clean bill of health from his doctor. So that's obviously unacceptable news and the right is not happy about it. We'll be talking about that too. We're gonna be talking about support for democracy. What little remains, that's gonna be fun. And a rich guy whining about the fact that his waffle was expensive. You know, we cover that pretty much every day. We're still on that beat, we're on the waffle beat and we're gonna be breaking it down to close out the first hour. But in the aftermath, we're gonna be talking about Donald Trump's brain. That's why it's on the thumbnail if you're on YouTube. Um, and uh, look, I've had a lot to say about Donald Trump's mental situation. But what do I know? I'm not an expert or anything. But we've got an expert, Dr. John Gartner is gonna be joining us in the last half hour to talk about how exactly Donald Trump is doing, how he's doing in comparison to when he was much younger and what he has to say about the state of Trump's brain and what it means for what he could be like as a president in a second term. So I'm very much looking forward to that. I hope that you are too. Buckle up for that, hit the like button if you're on a platform where that exists and continue to send us your comments, tweets and super chats and you just might win yourself a Blue Apron gift card for $100. Before all that, let's jump into this. The Supreme Court has just done everything that they can to save Donald Trump from himself, to save him from the consequences of the actions he has taken over the past few years. And it isn't just that they did that, it's that they did that in the most cowardly way imaginable. They've saved him by pretending, as they always do, that they're very serious interpreters and arbiters of the Constitution. And when Donald Trump claims in a laughable fashion that presidents should be immune from any prosecution for any crimes that they committed, no matter how egregious, well, the Supreme Court just you know, they really gotta think about that. They gotta weigh that over and, you know, due diligence and, and debate it and write out a really long thing. And that's, that's gonna take some time, man. That's gonna take a few months, you know, and, uh, you know, maybe there's some consequences from that, but we're just being very responsible. And, oh, what do you know? If it takes long enough, maybe the trials never happen at all. I guess that just didn't occur to them. The, conservative Supreme Court. And I honestly think that this is, as much as you might consider me to be a pessimist when it comes to the American judicial system, when it comes to how it interfaces with the rich and well connected. You can even call me like a cynic generally. This is worse than what I thought was the worst case scenario. And I'm gonna lay out why I think that is. And you tell me if you think that I'm wrong here. I imagined that the worst case scenario was that they, without even taking up the absolute immunity claim, simply say, yep, he has it, he has immunity. And thus all of these criminal trials go away. And you might think, well, well but that's worse than what's happening now. But is it, is it actually worse? Because if they decided Donald Trump is immune from any legal challenges whatsoever, 
poof, these cases are gone. That would be utterly corrupt. And obviously that would that would take away the chance that he could be found guilty, that is true. But it would be inescapable at that point that the Supreme Court is just a tool of the Republican Party. They're, they're just a tool of the proto-fascist movement taking over America. That's it. And importantly, in learning that lesson, the American people would no longer have any hope that that was how Donald Trump was going to be stopped. If the trials evaporate, then the trials can't save them from Donald Trump. The only thing that can save them is Donald Trump being rejected once again in November. But we have something worse than that. We have the facade, the fig leaf of a judicial process, the fig leaf of a serious Supreme Court weighing serious concerns. And here is how I think this is gonna play out. So in two months, so the week of April 22nd, literally the last three scheduled days for argumentation. They waited until the last half week of their term. They're gonna pick this thing up in a couple months. So none of the trials will go forward until then, not the ones where he's made the absolute minity claim at the least. And I have a feeling he's probably going to make it broadly after this. And then they're gonna consider it and that'll take a week or two or whatever, and then they will sit. And they will think and they will write, they'll sit and spin basically for another month or two. And then they'll come out with a decision. And I assume that at that point, they will have to reject the idea that he has absolute immunity. Because as I said, it would be utterly absurd to make any other claim. So absurd that there is no reason that they need to debate this at all. It's a laughable proposition, but they're picking it up because that way, they can be non-biased. I mean, before the election happened, they came out with a decision that he doesn't have absolute immunity. Look at them being critical of the president, critical of a Republican president, critical of the president that put one third of them on the court. But it won't matter because it'll be too late at that point. You can't just meet like Jack Smith isn't gonna like be watching CNN, hear the announcement and then just jump into the, the, the court again. You can't do that. It's gonna take weeks or months to get those trials back on track. And then it takes a while to actually do the trial. And then those judges, possibly there can be, you know, not only appeals, we expect that, but theoretically they could throw up other roadblocks. There's not enough time. The election will happen. And if what happens there is what the polls indicate has a 50-50 chance at the very least that Donald Trump gets elected again. That it doesn't matter what the Supreme Court said about absolute immunity. He will have absolute immunity by being able to simply snap his fingers and all the cases evaporate. And not technically all of them necessarily, theoretically, I guess Georgia maybe could still go through. Um, but the main ones, the ones actually bearing on the, the insurrection, the nationwide fake elector scheme would just evaporate. They would evaporate and once again, the Supreme Court would have weighed in to save a Republican candidate and then come out looking like totally clean, totally free. I mean, after all, they, they weren't as biased as they even were back in 2000. They ruled against absolute immunity, but they're doing it in a way that definitely protects him. And there are a lot of reasons that we can hypothesize about why they want to protect Donald Trump, why it is that they're taking this up at all, why it is that they're pretending that they need months to weigh this. Um, none of the explanations are good, none of them are. At the very least, it's a reminder that these are not like innocent, pure fonts of judicial wisdom. These are partisan actors who could have become you know, Republican Congress people or right wing pundits, but they became, they became judges instead. That's all it is, and they get way more power with the path that they took as they are wielding in this case.
But I want to I want to turn to a theory that I hadn't seen. Like it's it's fairly obvious once you think about it, but I hadn't heard it articulated in quite the way that you'll see in this clip. Ellie Mistal, who's been on the show multiple times, was on MSNBC, and he was rightly incredibly angry about what the Supreme Court is doing with the absolute immunity thing. Here is his argument for why they're doing it. Clarence Thomas doesn't want to die on that court, and he's getting old, and he's never going to retire during a Democratic president. So Clarence Thomas, one of the reasons why he's not recusing himself is that Clarence Thomas needs Trump to win again so Clarence Thomas can retire. And most likely, Sam Alito needs Trump to win again so Alito can retire instead of having to die on the bench. And so that's at least two of the nine who have a vested professional interest in seeing continued Republican hegemony over this country. And that's not the first time this has happened. As we all know, Sandra Day O'Connor wanted George Bush to be president and thus appointed him president in Bush v. Gore because she wanted to retire under a Republican president. This is how Republicans roll. Does anyone doubt that that is a major consideration on the part of someone like Clarence Thomas? Similarly to, we don't know as much about the way he thinks, but Clarence Thomas is one of the most thoroughly corrupt public figures in the last century in American politics. So does anyone doubt that that's a strong consideration? By the way, I would remind Clarence Thomas, you don't need Trump to win to be able to retire. You can just forget this whole thing. John Oliver is waiting in the wings to offer you a million dollars a year and a motor coach. You can just take it. Although as many people have pointed out on uh, on threads, uh, it looks like someone outbid John Oliver. We were hypothesizing that someone might, and it looks like it probably happened because they would not do this if that was not a consideration. Ellie Missal is 100% right. And again, I will take this opportunity to remind you, it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to have Republicans on the Supreme Court desperately clinging to office so that someone on their party can put you know their replacement in power. And by the way, in four or eight years, I don't I don't know that you know necessarily Sotomayor or Kagan or whatever would do this. I mean, it's hard. There's so few Democrats on the court, but theoretically, they could do the same thing. It doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to appoint people to the Supreme Court in the way that we do. If we did it under one of the reform situations that we've broken down on the show before, where theoretically during you get an 18 year term rather than a life thing, and each president appoints two people to the court. So there is a natural, predictable cycling. It's not totally random, it's not playing craps with ultimate control over the American judicial system. That would be a very different thing. There would be a more sense of consistency and less fear that losing could doom you for a generation. But of course, they don't want that. As is so often the case, they rail against corruption, but don't want to do anything to actually fix the system. So I think Ellie Mistal is 100% right there. I do think they are clinging to power. They are hoping that Donald Trump will be able to save them. And I will just remind everyone, as I always do, for like the solid six months leading up to an election. The Supreme Court is a super important consideration when it comes to who wins the presidency. We shouldn't need to be reminded of that. The last couple of times that we reminded people of that, one of the reasons we would give is, hey, if they take over and if they put a bunch of right wing radicals on the court, something crazy could happen. Like, I don't know, they could kill Roe v. Wade. Well, now all that's in the rear view mirror. They do that stuff, they stole the court. And then they killed Roe v. Wade, and they're working on a lot, theoretically bigger stuff than even that, effectively hamstringing all the like any federal regulation coming from the bureaucracy. They're working on that right now. So we need to save the court. And by the way, 
if Trump gets elected, I have no doubt that Clarence Thomas and Alito within six months, a year, maybe for Alito, he's a little bit younger, maybe he'll wait two or three years or whatever, they'll replace him, they will. If Biden gets in office, they might just try to wait it out. But let's at least make them do that. Let's at least have the chance that we could take those seats. Because if we did, I mean, look, that would be a massive unforeseen opportunity to reshape the path of the court. Right now, you have a 6-3 effectively conservative supermajority. If you were to flip those two seats, you have a wildly different court that might be way more in line with what the American people actually think about many of these hot button issues that the Supreme Court has been taking up and plans to over the next few years. Does Donald Trump have that kind yeah. of money sitting around? Yes. I mean, he does, of course, he has money. You know, he's a billionaire. Um, we know that. That he's got properties in Manhattan, Westchester, and the Hudson Valley, even his iconic $348 million Trump Tower, which, by the way, I think that's undervaluing Trump Tower, um, could be on the chopping block. Do you see that happening <laughs> over the next 25 days? No. <laughs> no. So I'm he'll just write a check, Alina? I'm not going to get into privileged information, but there will be a bond and there will be no issues with that. So that's all I'll say on that. Okay. <laughs> not worried about that. The guy is a billionaire. I mean, he said he was a billionaire. And I'm definitely going to say he's a billionaire because if I say for even a second that I doubt how much money he has, I'm going to be tossed off this case as I probably should have been a long time ago because my track record is trash. Uh, yeah, no, he's totally got money and he's not going to have to sell any of his real estate or anything like that. Except that he doesn't have the money and he is going to have to sell the real estate. And that's not me saying that. That's Alina Habba saying that, not on Newsmax last week, but in a court filing. So they say, in the absence of a stay on the terms here and outlined, basically saying, come on, you can't make us pay all this money, uh, properties would likely need to be sold to raise capital. Wait, but what do you, what do you mean? You swore to us on Newsmax that that wouldn't be the case, that he could just do it. Now, you'll notice that when he asked specifically, could he just write a check? Does he have actual liquid assets that can cover the nearly half billion dollars he owes? She didn't wanna say because of course he doesn't, okay? How much does he have? I don't know, he put up $100 million yesterday. That was his Hail Mary, don't make me pay the full 450, just take this 100 million. And thankfully, in this case, the judge slapped him down. But everything that she was saying in that little tour was totally untrue. Of course, he doesn't have over $400 million just sitting around. That's absurd. Of course, he's going to have to sell the properties. And you would think, well, this is going to look really bad to the MAGA base. I mean, we were lied to by people that we trust, people who we think of are real lawyers. But I have a feeling that they're going to be fine. They're going to move past that. In any event, the judge shot it down, that Hail Mary. And it's not that's not over. Next month, he'll be able to go before a full panel of appellate judges and try once again to change the circumstances. But in the meantime, there's no stay. And so this thing is rolling forward. He is on the hook to post the bond for the full amount, not $100 million, but $450 million. And if he fails to secure the bond, which would have to be secured with some sort of assets, possibly real estate, although we keep hearing that that's not generally considered a reliable way to secure a bond like this. The New York Attorney General's office, which brought the case, can collect the $454 million from him. And it's expected that Tish James, the Attorney General, will give him something something like a 30-day grace period. That's leading up to March 25th, which I think is the day that the 
hush money uh, trial starts. So big day for Donald Trump. Uh, but if he hasn't paid to that point, she can seize Mr. Trump's bank accounts, perhaps take control of his New York properties, or at the very least seize whatever assets he has still left around for her to seize. Because we are hearing reports that there is concern that he's using all of these delays and this grace period to transfer assets to where they won't be able to be stolen. So some of them, apparently some of the, not the real estate obviously, is being sent to Florida. And and we'll see how successful that is. There is a monitor on the Trump organization right now. So theoretically, they would see this if it was happening. But I will remind you that this is a strategy that's used by people like this. Alex Jones, all of a sudden didn't own anything once he owed $1.5 billion to the families that he'd spent years and years and years defaming, making their lives a living hell. He transferred control of businesses, he moved money around. All of a sudden, they don't have any money. It's weird how that works. But anyway, we'll see how successful he is. He has 30 days, actually less than 30 days right now, a little bit more than three weeks. And um, he might owe the money at that point. Or hell, maybe the appellate panel of judges uh, will buy what he's selling. In the meantime, you're probably wondering, the Hail Mary didn't work, what's his next move? Well, here's the way that he's communicating about it. He says, I did nothing wrong except build a successful and very liquid company. But now the, the company's liquid? Do you even know what that means, Donald Trump? The company's a company, man, and your assets are real estate. They're the exact opposite of a liquid asset. What are you talking about? Something, something, Hillary Rodden Clinton, something weaponized attack, blah, 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 blah. Look, I'm not gonna read any more of the specifics because there's nothing there that actually matters. Um, he, you know, he talks about businesses, flee New York, people flee New York, okay. Somebody's gonna move out of the state they've lived in for years because they're mad that Donald Trump owes money. I sort of doubt it. The trucker thing fell apart, sorry, buddy. But there's no new strategy there. There's not even new talking points there. He's just scared. He's just scared of losing this much money. And not not even just the money, it's, it's the properties. If he has to liquidate one of these properties, if he has to sell it for what it's actually worth, not what he would imply it's worth or whatever that chucklehead on Newsmax says he thinks it's worth as if he's a real estate assessor or something like that. That is going to like cut right to his ego. He is not gonna like that. Uh, Tish James will probably have some celebratory tweets, but for Donald Trump, it'll be a truly bad day. Maybe not as bad as the other stuff happening on March 25th, we'll have to see, but it's a rough time for him. Anyway, with that said, I wanna move to a smaller story. That I just makes me excited for that trial. So let's move into this. Donald Trump loves to run his mouth. He's loved to do it for decades, not just in speeches, though, also in books, which he wrote himself. He's written multiple books over the decades, and very soon he might regret that. He might, in particular, regret some of the big boasts and big tough talk that he put in those books because. Apparently, quotes from the books that he's written over the decades are going to feature heavily in the upcoming hush money trial involving Stormy Daniels. The DA's office for Manhattan has informed Trump's legal defense team that there are several dozen quotes from these different books that they are going to be bringing up in the trial. These are from books that have been published all the way back in 1987 and up to 2015, one of them right on the cusp of him running for office, by the way. And that is going to be considered evidence for the trial. So this is coming from Trump, the art of the deal, think like a billionaire, how to get rich, which don't don't buy how to get rich. I can spoil it for you, just be born 
rich, be born with a rich dad who gives you hundreds of millions of dollars. It's a great way to get rich, actually. Think big and kick ass, awesome book and great again, okay? So you might be wondering, okay, but why, why would those quotes actually matter? Why would quotes from years, in some cases decades ago even matter? Well, we don't know all the specific quotes, to be fair. Those will be coming out as time goes on. But we do know some of the things likely to come up. And a lot of it has to do with how Donald Trump has talked about women, in some cases business, but also women. And if these quotes are allowed to be read into evidence, I don't think the juries are gonna have great opinions of Donald Trump on these topics. So one, there's a quote from Think Big and Kick Ass. He said, I have been able, I have been able to date, screw them all because I have something that many men do not have. I don't know what it is, but women have always liked it. And that is one of the Trumpiest lines of text ever. I've been able to date. Wait, is that enough? They know that I'm dating these people. I don't have much respect for them. I want them to know I'm screwing these women. Let me just write it in parentheses, screwing the women. Then just write screw, man. Why'd you write the date at that point? Anyway, um, defense attorneys also might use this one. I always think of myself as the best looking guy. And it's no secret that I love beautiful women. No, it is It is not a secret. It's oftentimes incredibly uncomfortable, but it's not a secret. So little of this is a secret that should be about beautiful women. Random beautiful women, beautiful women that you run up and grope, beautiful women that are your daughters. There's a lot of stuff about how much you love beautiful women that I would much prefer remained a secret. He said at one point in How to Get Rich in 2004, all the women on The Apprentice flirted with me, consciously or unconsciously, that's to be expected. A sexual dynamic is always present between people unless you are asexual. I love that he recognizes that asexual people exist. I like that. That was very woke of him back in 2004. The rest of it is trash, though. Consciously or unconsciously, uh, they flirted with him unconsciously. So first of all, you could say that he doesn't think of women as uh, real people who act with agency or even know what they want. That's deeply distressing, but consistent for Donald Trump. But also, this is a guy who apparently thinks they don't even know it. And they want me, they're flirting with me, they'll they'll figure it out at some point. I don't know, like if you're trying to pitch this guy as someone who theoretically might cross lines and things like that. I don't know, he's got a paper trail certainly. And then, and this is really interesting because this actually plays into what happened with the hush money payments. Not that the payments happened, but remember eventually he didn't wanna pay afterward. He said in 2004, when somebody hurts you, just go after them as viciously and as violently as you can. For many years, I've said that if someone screws you, screw them back. Seems like a great guy, you know? Definitely a Christian, by the way. I think he was quoting Jesus, I think, actually, in that. It's New Testament. I know he gets them mixed up or whatever, but I'm pretty sure it's New Testament. Anyway, um, the defense does not believe that this sort of stuff should be. Uh, entered in evidence. They say that these quotes are, technically they say the statements taken from the quotes are largely irrelevant and stale. Theoretically, I mean, they're talking about the books. I mean, the most bombastic parts of the books are stale and irrelevant, but they've requested that for each of those statements that is actually presented as evidence, they should have to make the case for why it should be evidence. And I honestly think that that's perfectly fair. Uh, This is not directly bearing on Stormy Daniels or the hush money or whatever. 
And I think you can make a case that they're trying to get to the character of the man. Sure, let them actually argue for why they're relevant to the case. I'm perfectly fine with that. I also wonder in terms of the strategy, like this is supposed to explain to people who Donald Trump is when it comes to women, but does anyone not know? I don't even just mean like people who don't like Trump. Do Trump fans not know what he thinks of women? I think they know and I think they're fine with it. I think the conservative women are fine with it. I mean, there have been photos of women at Trump rallies wearing a Trump can grab me by the P shirts. They seem to know who he is, but sure. I like reboots and reruns as much as the next guy. So feel free to dig into his books that he totally wrote. Now, a lot of people go through IVF and it's, it's their opportunity to have a baby. And I think I, I completely support it. I'm for IVF. I mean, I'm, I'm pro IVF and it's protected in law in Missouri in my state. And I think it should be everywhere. Um, I'll look at Senator Duckworth's bill. But in terms of fertility clinics, if you're pro-life, you want these things to function. They actually provide people with children who have a hard time otherwise. So I don't want to do anything to shut that down. Is there objection? Reserving the right to object. The senator from Mississippi. The bill before us today is a vast overreach that is full of poison pills that go way too far, far beyond ensuring legal access to IVF. Now, this is the unfortunate thing that happens when one senator is left off the email of the talking points for the day. Cindy Hyde-Smith, don't you see Republicans are all pretending to care about IVF and you ruined it for them. You blew up the talking points. Of course, all of this is following from the Alabama Supreme Court decision that frozen embryos are the exact same thing as real boys and girls. And so as a result of that, the Republicans have had to come out and be like, no, 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 no. We're not crazy radicals. I mean, I know we killed Roe v. Wade and we're definitely moving beyond that. And we're gonna outlaw IVF, let's keep it real. And then birth control is up next, but don't vote against us in November over that. They're all running out and pretending to care about IVF. And look, maybe some of them actually do. Maybe some of them are not. Uh, total whack jobs. But Cindy Hyde Smith had an opportunity to give the party what they were saying they wanted, a strong statement to protect IVF. That's what they could have done and she blocked it. So they all say that they're for IVF, but when they have the opportunity to actually act, you know, actions rather than words, suddenly, ah, oh, Cindy Hyde Smith stopped us again. What are you gonna do? I guess the pro-lifers get what they want again. It's just her though, it's not us. We're saying all the right things on social media. Okay, okay, gamble your rights on that. In any event, even she still says that she supports IVF 100%, just not in any capacity that would actually maintain access to those services. She says that the bill goes too far. I don't know what the hell she's talking about. It just protects access to IVF. The thing is, they are legitimately in a difficult position, all of them. Whether they're Cindy Hyde Smith, who's the one out in front actually killing the thing, or the others pretending to care about it, but they don't, is that many of them don't necessarily care about IVF. I think most of these Republicans don't care at all about even abortion. I think that they're there for tax breaks and for the rich and wealthy. But um, but they know that if they pass a bill protecting it, then that's going to seem to the most radical members of their base that they're not on their side. Even if it just protects IVF, for some Republicans that goes too far. And it will seem like they're moving in the wrong direction. I mean, you just killed Roe v. Wade and now you're actually protecting reproductive rights. So they don't wanna do that. It would create 
Federal protections for IVF access nationwide, overriding state limits, and that is just too much for them. And so we're in this ridiculous position. And I will remind you, by the way, that as ridiculous as Cindy Hyde Smith looks for saying that she supports IVF and then blocking a bill that would just protect access to it, she is somewhat consistent in that. She's consistent in her inconsistency in that she also blocked it back in 2022. Because thankfully back then we did have some politicians who were like, I see where this is going. Maybe we get out in front of the next phase of the anti-reproductive rights culture war. And all of this is super hypocritical. But I want to point out that while Cindy Hyde-Smith is getting deserved criticism for what she did, she's not the only one that deserves to be criticized. I want to show you this tweet from Representative Michelle Steele, who said, as someone who struggled to get pregnant, I believe all life is a gift. IVF allowed me, as it has so many others, to start my family. I believe there is nothing more pro-life than helping families have children, and I do not support federal restrictions on IVF. And you might be wondering at this point, why are you reading that? Because it's BS, she has supported federal restrictions on IVF. She is literally a co-sponsor of the Life at Conception Act, which it's a fetal personhood thing that provides no exceptions whatsoever for IVF. So she supported a bill that would have done at the federal level what the Alabama Supreme Court did at the Alabama level. So you can say that you support IVF, and I'm not just using that as a rhetorical tool, you can just say it. You could literally just go on social media and say that you support it even though you don't. That's a thing that you can do. Ashley Hinson had tweeted, my heart goes out to anyone who has struggled with fertility and has had a difficult journey to motherhood. IVF has helped countless women grow their family and we should ensure that women who want to become moms are able to do so. IVF should remain an available option for women. And at the federal level, thankfully, it still is. Because the bill that she co-sponsored that would have killed it didn't actually get signed into law because she also co-sponsored the same bill. Liars on top of liars on top of liars. But in comes Representative Nancy Mace, the outlier, the rebel. She doesn't fall in line with the other Republicans. She tweeted, I will stop any and all efforts to ban IVF. And maybe in the future she will, but she wasn't doing that when she co-sponsored the bill too. They're all utter liars, they all support field personhood. But I do wanna be fair, it is not just the GOP women. I mean, virtually every one of them is a horrific hypocrite on these topics, but it's not just them. Mike Rogers was hit by literally the only saving grace of Twitter right now, which is the community notes. So he tweeted, IVF has been critical to helping Americans grow their families and realize the blessing of life and parenthood. I oppose any and all efforts to restrict access to IVF, period. I don't know what he thinks the period means and maybe he thinks it's opposite day because as you can see listed, he didn't oppose any of those bills. In fact, he voted for, he sponsored all four of them that would have outlawed IVF. They are massive liars, massive hypocrites. And I just wanna in closing remind you of why. Why don't they just give the craziest Republicans what they want? Why don't they just do what they've been trying to do, which is kill IVF and Maybe condoms next or the pill or God knows what. They're literally just rewatching old seasons of, uh, of, of, oh my God, I'm blanking on The Handmaid's Tale to get their, their marching orders from. It's because those are radical positions, okay? Regrettably, unfortunately, people with a lot of power and influence and maybe big media platforms hold those radical positions or at the very least pretend to. 
But they are not popular positions. 66% of the public oppose designating IVF embryos as children and holding those who destroy them legally responsible, while 31% support it. And that is the 66% is great news. The 31% is still insane. It is insane. They're frozen embryos. What are you literally just gonna maintain them? Frozen for centuries, because if you ever don't, then you're killing a real person. It's utter madness. We are talking to crazy people. And unfortunately, about three out of every 10 Americans are utter crazy people, not evenly distributed. 49% of Republicans literally match support for outlawing IVF as support continuing it, half and half. Now, look, maybe you draw some optimism from that. That it's as common for Republicans to get that IVF is not the boogeyman as not. But I, I think that those numbers need to shift. Hell, even 17% of Democrats want to end it. So, you know, glass houses, I guess. But this is why they are running scared. Just don't, don't forget it. They think I look too young. He's joking. And look, maybe he should joke. He had his physical. It apparently went well. He was given a clean bill of health. So if you're Biden, you're gonna come out of that and you're gonna you're gonna crow about it. You're gonna joke about it. He's been very jokey lately. You give that guy a little bit of ice cream and he gets this sugar high of comedy that he's going on. But anyway, um apparently it did go well for him, according to his doctor, at least. This is Dr. Kevin O'Connor. Said the president feels well, and this year's physical identified no new concerns. He continues to be fit for duty and fully executes all of his responsibilities without any exceptions or accommodations. He is a healthy, active, robust 81-year-old male who remains fit to successfully execute the duties of the presidency to include those as chief executive, head of state, and commander in chief. So for what that's worth, the doctor says he's as healthy as any other 81-year-old man. Which is a hell of a qualifier, but look more importantly says that he can he can do his duties. And by the way, when you look, there's a lot of speculation, obviously, about Joe Biden's brain and his body recently. Also recently about his crotch, and I really would prefer if we move on from that as a country. But when you talk to people, usually anonymously, who know and work with Joe Biden, most of them say, yes, he is slipping up in his speech. But he still has the exact same grasp of the issues, the ability to make decisions and things like that that he does before. Now, many of them will add to that. Will he in three or four years? They don't know as much. That's, I guess, a battle that will have to be fought at that point. But this does seem to line up with people who are anonymous. So they're not gonna suffer any consequences for saying something that wouldn't be popular. You could have that concern about Kevin O'Connor. I can't imagine a president's doctor coming out and being like, this dude is a wreck. No, honestly, he's got a gut, his brain is failing. We're never gonna see that. I don't think those people would remain as doctors. And we'll return to an example of that later on. But the reason that they are talking about this, that Joe Biden is joking about it, that he's going on Seth Meyers and joking about it, is that it remains a concern. When you poll people, 62% say, that his age is a major concern, which is the highest number I've seen like that for for any candidate. So look, that's that's obviously a concern. And joking, I think, is one way to deal with that. I know it might seem flippant or shallow or whatever, but if you can joke about it, if you could be a little bit self-deprecating, I think that for some Americans, that's persuasive. So when he goes on Seth Meyers and he says this, 
you got to take a look at the other guy. He's about as old as I am. It's about how old your ideas are. Look, this is a guy who wants to take us back. He wants to take us back on Roe v. Wade. Well, he already took us back. He wants to take us back on a whole range of issues that are 50, 60 years. They've been solid American positions. Look, I think trying to pivot to it being about the policy is a good idea. I would say at the same time, there are a lot of Democratic voters who have concerns about some of your policy positions. So I agree with you that it should be about policy. But in that case, you know, listen to your potential voters and all that. But I think that this is one way to deal with it. So that's good. I'm gonna set aside Joe Biden. I'm actually much more interested in how the right is responding to this. So Biden has had his physical and the doctor said he's healthy. He can do his job and obviously the right is not happy about that. We're gonna begin the reactions with Donald Trump who bleated, crooked Joe Biden must take a capital C cognitive capital T test. Maybe that way we would be able to find out why he makes such terrible decisions. I took two of them and aced them both, no mistakes. All capital P presidents or people wanting to become president should mandatorily take this test. Again, it is not and never has been a cognitive test. It is not a test of like how clever you are, how intelligent you are, your IQ. It is literally just a diagnostic tool for like moderate to advanced dementia. That's that's what it's for. And so he wants Joe Biden to take the test. I just at this point, just have Joe Biden take the test. Honestly, what is the difference? And by the way, if Joe Biden takes the test and releases his results, it won't change a damn thing. I will remind you all, Donald Trump was asking for Barack Obama's birth certificate for like 35 years when he finally gave it, which he never should have. It's insane that he had to. That didn't reassure Donald Trump that he was a citizen. He kept on spinning his racist conspiracy theories. But Trump is not the only one that's mad. Whoever Benny Johnson is says Joe Biden didn't take a cognitive test because it's physical because the White House says he doesn't need it. Kareem, again, it's a diagnostic tool for dementia. It is not a routine part of a physical. I don't know why you trust Trump as much as you do, Benny Johnson, but he says that he passed the cognitive test every day as president. If there's nothing to hide, why won't he take it? Invoke the 25th now. The man has dementia and the entire world knows it. He might have a leg to stand on if he ever, even for a second, acknowledged Donald Trump's obvious mental decline. But of course he doesn't because he's a hack and a tool of a proto-fascist regime. That's just who he is. But more importantly, let's turn to a physician. I have more respect for what they say in this area. So Ronnie Jackson, who I guess was a doctor, I guess technically still kind of a doctor. It seems like utter madness considering all that we learned about his alleged drinking and pill use while he was in the White House. But okay, we're setting that aside. The overwhelming majority of Americans have grave concerns about Biden's cognitive decline. So did he take a cognitive exam with his annual physical? Nope, he did nothing. Biden needs this test done now. I'll even volunteer to administer it, it needs to happen. Where is Dr. O'Connor to brief the press? Is the White House worried he might slip up and tell the truth about Biden's cognitive decline? This physical exam is a joke. Biden should not be president. Now, first of all, I love the idea that the doctor, who we have no concerns about his mental competence, is gonna slip up and reveal the full thing. What does he think he is, Donald Trump that just goes on weird tangents? But he does bring up the fact that a physical exam could be a joke. And I think there's something to that. You know what? I think there's actually precedence for questioning what the doctors say about the president. Because I am old enough to remember when Donald Trump was examined by a doctor. And that doctor said, after physically examining him, that Donald Trump weighed 
239 pounds. And you might recall who that doctor was, or maybe you can tell where I'm going with this. But it was Dr. Ronnie Jackson, who weighed Donald Trump and said that he weighs 239 pounds. Now, it doesn't matter what Donald Trump weighs in terms of whether he can be president. Let's be very clear about that. And anyone who needlessly takes shots at Donald Trump's weight in place of substantive critiques of him, I don't know why you're doing that. But the fact remains, he does not weigh 239 pounds. And if Ronnie Jackson can weigh Donald Trump, look at the number, which is inarguably significantly higher than that. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's 250, 275. Arnold Schwarzenegger earlier this week speculated that it was 315. And then lie and write 239. Why exactly are we trusting anything else that he has to say about this? Ronnie Jackson lied about his weight and a ridiculous lie. For context, by the way, not to make this too personal, I weighed 239 pounds like a week ago. And I'm not saying that I'm fit and trim or whatever, but I will gladly stand next to Donald Trump so we can do a little bit of a comparison. In any event, he lied about that, goes on to say the only thing that Donald Trump needs to do for his, for his health is lose 10 to 15 pounds. Other than that, he's perfect, no concerns. It's called genetics, I don't know. Some people just have great genes. I told the president that if he had a healthier diet, he might live to be 200 years old, I don't know. He is a demonstrable liar. And the reason I bring this up isn't about Biden's health, it's not even about the weight. When Donald Trump says that he got a 30 out of 30 on that dementia test, we always just accept that and then say, this doesn't say what he says it says. But why do we accept that? They're lying about his weight. They're literally lying about a number. Do we think that if he had not gotten 30 out of 30, that Ronnie Jackson would have been honest about that? Why are we assuming that? So of course, he's not. Biden's not gonna take the test with Ronnie Jackson. And we could debate whether he should take the test at all. But Ronnie Jackson has literally the least ground to stand on in uh, on this topic than literally anyone in the country, doctor or civilian. We grew up hearing that America was the greatest democracy the world had ever seen. But unfortunately, in recent years, it has become fairly undeniable that in the next few years, it might not be. Its future as a democracy is not guaranteed. There are those who want to take it in a different direction. And what is now equally undeniable, according to recent polls, is that if that happens, if America falls to authoritarianism, there's going to be a very significant chunk of the country that doesn't have a problem with that at all. So I want to show you this new poll on authoritarianism. And it doesn't just talk about the United States. This is actually a trend that is seen in many countries and we're gonna get to that. So stick around for that. But I do wanna start with America. In the US, 32% say that they would support a form of governance led by a strong leader or the military, literally a military. Like usually you word things to try to not scare people off from telling you what they really think. But they didn't do that in this case. They basically described a military dictatorship and one out of three Americans were like, Sign me up. Respondents who support autocracy largely have a right-wing ideological background. Oh, surprise, surprise. And we're less likely to offer any solution to help fix their respective democracies. That is a very interesting point because it almost reminds me of like when you talk about couples who have issues. And you know, there's couples who will go to like a couple's counselor or something. They'll try to work on it because they care to save it. 
when you get to the point where they don't like one of the partners or maybe both don't even want to go to therapy, then that's usually a worse problem because it indicates that there's nothing left to save. You don't even want to save it. And for many of these right wingers, it's not that they think that our democracy is flawed, which it indisputably is. They don't care to save it at this point because democracy was only ever a means to an end. Democracy for many years, not always, but for many years delivered right wing governance, usually branded as Republicans, but often Democrats would get in office and right wing stuff would still happen anyway. So why not have a democracy if it gives you what you want? If it maintains the hierarchies that are so crucial to you, that men are better than women, white people better than people of color, straight people better than gay people, all of that. And definitely rich people better than poor people, but they're so deluded by what they're hearing on Fox News that they don't focus on that part. The issue is that it is no longer reliably delivering those outcomes for them. And so do they change their strategy? Do they change how they campaign? Yeah, a little bit maybe around the edges, but largely they're just okay with no longer having a democracy because it's the outcome that they valued, not the process. It was never about the system of government. It was about what that system of government delivered for them. And so now they're ready to move on. Now, on the other hand, you have some people who like democracy, they will they will supply to you ways that we could potentially strengthen it. And so depending on who you talk to, it's different, but some say we elect more women. Some people say we elect younger people, people from lower income backgrounds. I think that those are all great solutions. If you elect some people who are actually like the people voting for them, then maybe they will propose solutions that actually benefit regular people rather than just always benefiting the rich and wealthy. But when I see these numbers that one in three Americans would prefer a dictatorship, I can't help but think, and I'm sorry to bring it back to this, of this, of Tucker Carlson going to a Russian grocery store and then saying, you know, kind of sucks that like the leadership here kills people and there's no press freedom, but you know, the bread is cheap and the subways are nice and clean. And so maybe at the end of the day, do we really care who our leaders are? Does it matter if they're evil? Okay, this is why he's trying to sell authoritarianism to a domestic audience because he knows there's fertile ground for it. There is a desire for it, a belief that I'm okay with a dictator. The dictator would never turn on me, which just check your history, by the way, conservatives. It doesn't often work out well for anyone under those systems, but he's doing it because there's an appetite for it. And we don't have time to jump at all the numbers, but there's a number, 17 different countries have half or more. Respondents say that they're dissatisfied with the way that democracy works. So this is a global problem and it requires actual solutions. And if the Democrats could be the only ones actually running on maintaining democracy, then they need to do it not just by contrasting themselves with the Republicans, but by reassuring people that democracy is a good system. It's a desirable system to have. And just doing what you've always done clearly is not delivering that. Billionaire investor Kyle Bass really thought that he had a great little burn for Biden over food prices. And instead he ended up burning himself because yes, food is expensive, but sometimes it kind of makes sense that it's expensive. So he did the thing that you do, you just get a receipt for the food that you bought and you say it's really high and ah, I got you Biden. Except in this case, look at the receipt. So he had a breakfast. And it is expensive, it's legitimately expensive. He had waffles and Diet Coke and orange juice. Oh, two beverages, so fancy. And heritage bacon, whatever that is. And it's $69, nice, but not nice financially. That is a lot of money. And it ends up being about $85. The issue is 
that that is not like he describes it as just terrible inflation milestone reached. You're at a hotel in New York City. You're at an expensive hotel in New York City. You're at a five star hotel in New York City and you're complaining about how expensive your waffle is. Did you consider maybe not adding the $12 bacon to it? I will agree. That's super expensive and not even just at five star hotels. I had to take a, I took a trip to New York a couple months back. I did an event for Reuters and I stayed at a hotel that was not a five star hotel. And the food at room service I thought was too expensive. So you know what I did? Took a picture of my receipt and I whined about it online. No, I didn't do that. I went to a cheaper place to buy food. That was an option for this billionaire. He decided to spend $85. And it reminds me of other people who've done stuff like this. If we can sort of jump ahead. You have David Brooks who spent 78 bucks at an airport in Newark, but like he had an expensive alcoholic beverage. You didn't have to actually do that. Jason Chaffetz said that his turkey for Thanksgiving cost $90. What monstrous turkey like straight out of a sci-fi movie did you buy? Yes, inflation is still bad. It's getting better, but it's bad. And yes, inflation for food in particular is bad. It's one of the reasons people like Joe Biden are talking about things like shrinkflation and putting pressure on companies to stop doing this. But Fox doesn't like when he does that. They stick with the companies over Joe Biden. And when you're lying about how much your food is, I just I don't buy your position. You lie about how expensive it is. You stop anything from being done to actually take the prices down. So it, it reeks of what it is, it's opportunism. It's not you suffering the way most people do. You're not folksy and like a regular person, you billionaire investor, you. You're a guy at a five star hotel willingly paying 12 bucks for a side of bacon. Cry me a river. Anyway, that is unfortunate all the time we have for the first hour of the show. But stick around for the aftermath if you're watching live. We have Dr. Gartner who's gonna be joining us to talk about Donald Trump and what remains of his brain. It should be a lot of fun after this.